Hello, friends. I am currently working on a new series that I hope you'll find interesting, and we'll look into some bread-and-butter Cold War issues of culture, rivalry, and relationships. But I thought it's been a while since a good Fearmonger Fridays has looked into current events and their relationship to the new and old Cold Wars alike. It's my hope that talking about what's going on in certain corners of the world might spark some conversation or even some new ideas about future episodes. So don't forget to find the show on Facebook and rant or otherwise vent your rage, which is what Facebook and YouTube comment sections are good for anyway. A quick reminder that Patreon.com slash Cold War Vault is working with some interesting bonus offers with different tiers of sponsorship. So have a look there. It's certainly a good place to throw your support behind a new show idea. On this Fearmonger Friday, I would like to talk about what is actually an important unfolding modern Cold War story of the type that in more settled times would make far more headlines. In a world of pandemics and riots, we can forget the most inflammatory, destabilizing, and horrifying thing in the world. Would you like to ride in my There is nothing particularly new about the hydrogen-filled balloons drifting lazily over the most heavily fortified border in the world. Those balloons carried on the wind from South Korea into the north, too high to be shot down, have for years carried propaganda leaflets, or informational leaflets, depending on who you ask. They have also been loaded with Bibles, dollar bills, USB memory sticks with South Korean soap operas, and unmodified radios. This, of course, because North Korean radios can only tune in to government stations. In many cases, the balloons are launched by organized North Korean defectors, who, you can imagine, have fairly strong anti-North feelings. But that feeling isn't universally shared. South Korea openly denounces the balloon missions and has actually engaged in lawsuits against prominent and self-described balloon warriors. New legislation to make the balloons illegal is even being proposed under pressure from the North, the idea being just that the balloons destabilize the relative peace. I did say under pressure from the North, it is easy to forgive their bad behavior when your capital city is within range of World War II-era artillery, not to mention a virtual buffet of rockets. And it isn't just the government that isn't fond of the balloons. The balloon warriors don't get any love from the South Korean towns near the border, who often have to clean up the litter problem of tens of thousands of prematurely dropped leaflets. Pop. Seng Hak, the defector and leader of the Fighters for Free North Korea, remains undeterred 
Despite death threats and an assassination attempt by an embedded North Korean agent with poison needles. He said, South Korea is gagging us, who are its citizens, while kowtowing to the evil regime in the North. And then, he said, the more they suppress us, the more leaflets we will send, and the more often. Well, more leaflets he did indeed send. On May 31st alone, 500,000 leaflets were lofted over the demilitarized zone. But this time, something was different. Because the North didn't just grumble, it exploded. The immediate reaction was the expected indignation. The North released a statement that called the propaganda, quote, a provocation graver than gun and artillery fire. Kim Yo-jong, who is the Supreme Leader's younger sister, took the lead in fanning the flames. And this is its own fascinating piece of Korean political news. She has been in the public eye since Kim Jong-un disappeared mysteriously in April, seeming to take on new responsibilities in her brother's absence. He has since returned from the dead, but his sister has not receded. The fight kicked off on June 4th, when Kim Yo-jong declared after the leaf scattering, they had better get themselves ready for the possibility of the complete withdrawal of the already desolate Kaesong Industrial Park following the stop tour of Mount Kumgang, or shutdown of the North-South Joint Liaison Office, whose existence only adds to trouble, or the scrapping of the North-South Agreement in the military field, which is hardly of any value. This means the closing of the joint North-South Industrial Park at Kaesong, which is essentially empty anyway, the stop of tours to a mountain in the north, which has mostly been empty since 2018, a shutdown of the joint liaison office, which since its creation in 2018 hasn't really seen much success, and the end of an agreement, which actually would have done some good if any significant part of it could have been implemented. These were steps that were hypothetical, incremental, and as is often the case with North Korean declarations, left plenty of room to wiggle. They were also steps, practically speaking, that would have no practical meaning except to rob the South of the smallest of footholds in diplomacy that it had hoped to build on over months and years. The day after Kim Yo-jong's statement of possible steps because of the extraordinary indignation caused by the balloons, the North Korean department that oversees North-South affairs and operations, called the United Front Department, issued a very rare statement that enforced the earlier options and used even tougher language. But in true North Korean style, and maybe, we can only speculate, because Kim Yo-jong is such a hardliner, it walked back the inevitability and said that the department had been ordered only to start examination for the technical implementation of the suggestions of the previous day. So, despite the tone, 
which by all accounts of Korean analysts and speakers was nastier, it was carefully worded to leave open the option to de-escalate, and that if the North moved ahead, it would be a staged process with various decompression stops. The first step, though, was clearly declared to be the closing of the North-South Liaison Office. We'll move on to the next days of the Korean balloon crisis, June 6th and 7th. Commentaries appearing on the 6th in North Korean media, and I don't need to explain that the commentaries are just another form of official statement, omitted the original, somewhat inflammatory statements of Kim Yo-jong and the United Front Department, and suggested that the entire crisis could still be repaired, stating, it is proper for the South Korean authorities to get themselves ready to prevent recurrence of such inglorious happenings and clear their house of the rubbish before making senseless response to us. If they truly value the North-South agreements and have an intent to thoroughly fulfill them. Commentary on the 7th did mention the previous comments from the 4th and 5th and heated up the language, but still suggested that there was a way out. It offered the reminder that both the North and the South had agreed to stop spreading leaflets in two separate agreements in 2018. It's worth noting that none of this seems to be coming from Kim Jong-un himself, who has been relatively silent in his scorn. Surprisingly, the first of the original steps was put into place on the 9th. That morning, an announcement was made, both to international and domestic audiences, that at noon, the communication lines between the North and the South would be completely cut off. The announcement said that it was the first step of a phased plan for the work against the enemy. The use of the term enemy is not just rhetoric, but a notable escalation. The announcement also said that the whole plan had been formulated between Kim Yong-chol, a general and party politician, and Kim Yo-jong, both acknowledged to be hardliners. What's important to note here is that this was an escalation. What had been a suggestion to get rid of the joint liaison office had become the cutoff of all inter-Korean communication channels. Even if the line between the North and the South had really only been dusted off to check the connection once a day. But even so, it did represent the closest thing to the red phone, the hotline between the White House and the Kremlin, A continued verbal assault came from the highest echelons of power in the North throughout the crisis. But in responding specifically to those who had launched the balloons, I would like to pause here to read from the poetry of the one who has become perhaps North Korea's greatest verbal abuser of balloon launchers, the sister of Kim Jong-un, the politically ascendant Kim Yo-jong. The South Korean authorities connived at the hostile acts against the DPRK. 
What matters is that those human scum hardly worth their value as human beings had the temerity of faulting our supreme leadership and citing the nuclear issue. I wonder if the world knows what kind of riffraffs those foolish defectors from the North are. It is the height of irony. Those fools who are almost illiterate wanted to talk about the nuclear issue, though they know no concept about it. This is like a shop boy near a temple chanting a sutra untaught. Human scum, little short of wild animals who betrayed their own homeland, are engrossed in such unbecoming acts to imitate men. They are sure to be called mongrel dogs. It is time to bring their owner to account. I would like to ask South Korean authorities if they are ready to take care of the consequences of evil conduct done by the rubbish-like mongrel dogs who took no scruple to slander us while faulting the nuclear issue in the meanest way at the most untimely time. An untimely time indeed. This certainly represents some troublesome developments, and you have to ask yourself, why close facilities that have no meaning and cut off communications lines that aren't really used? And why threaten escalation without end? On one level, we can probably answer the why this way. So a quick outline. On the 4th of June, a massive North Korean media campaign began with Kim Yo-jong. On the 5th, a similar inflammatory statement from the almost always silent United Front Department. On the 6th and 7th, orchestrated policy commentaries appeared in the party newspaper and on party television news, respectively. Though I haven't mentioned it, coincident with all of this were pop-up political rallies throughout the country instigated by front groups for the government itself. And I think that's the key. Analysts suggest that the whole thing is really aimed at the domestic audience, the people of North Korea, and too tightly choreographed to really be an indignant and bellicose response to an influx of balloons. So what exactly are they trying to do here? Why? That's the second why. Let's try to answer that on another big picture level. First, the diplomatic effort at denuclearization failed at Hanoi last year. The reasons for that can certainly be argued, and many have argued them. But two things are factual. It left North Korea with a nuclear program that is extremely expensive to create and maintain, and the incredible burden of even more economic sanctions. All of that is a storm the North has weathered for years and could in the future, particularly with help from China, its primary ally, which enables every bad behavior in the North's arsenal, because the price China pays is minimal in comparison to maintaining what amounts to a bulwark, a barrier, a buffer. I don't know what the Chinese might call such a thing, We'll just have to call it the Great Buffer of Pyongyang. And then something really unexpected happened. 
China, and quickly the world, was beset by the pandemic. The internal effects on North Korea remain unknown, though most watchdogs seem to think the bullet was largely dodged by implementing all of the draconian measures you could expect from Kim Jong-un. Some of those early measures to contain the coronavirus inside North Korea involved the recall of their commercial fleet, mostly from Chinese ports. Satellite images showed the idle ships around North Korea as early as January. This effectively limited travel and trade with North Korea's biggest trading partner and biggest enabler of black market enterprise, China. The fleet was an essential lifeline, moving coal, minerals, methamphetamine, and just about anything that could possibly be profitable from North Korea into China or out to sea to be handed off to other vessels. And with all that said, even if the fleet had been able to move, supply chain problems were among the first economic victims of the pandemic. And that is a supply chain that brings into North Korea what it needs for its most successful and profitable black market outputs. There are many of these outputs, but one of them is illicit drugs, and what it needs are Chinese drug precursors. All of this might suggest that internal economic problems already suffocating might be poised to cross some terminal line into famine and disarray. The great June balloon blow-up might just be a way to begin the process of consolidating support in a time of crisis by using the same old enemies. Maybe the North really is stealing itself internally for a war that it sees as a war of necessity or a war foisted on it by those same old enemies. To that end, and know that this did not come from me, some Korean watchers suggest that the rallying cry is a genuine propaganda preemption born out of the fear that South Korea or the U.S might somehow use the coronavirus pandemic as an excuse to move against them militarily. You know, it doesn't have to make sense. The North's leadership just has to think that it makes sense. Perhaps more realistic, and maybe rallying the people in time of crisis is the first move in the palace intrigue that will see a dramatic change of leadership perhaps the planned obsolescence of Kim Jong-un. With intelligence analysts who immerse themselves in North Korean affairs, there is a commonly heard structure in the morning presentations. It's a structure that the CIA has used for years in matters concerning North Korea. It goes like this, maybe, possibly, could be also. Meaning, with the question like, why are they doing this, the answer might be, maybe A, possibly B, could also be C. In which C is the exact opposite of A, making the analysis essentially useless, and another North Korean intelligence dead end. Addendum things can always get worse. 
As I was preparing this story on Friday and into Saturday, Kim Yo Jong escalated things again. Possibly. It is a great irony, a linguistic irony, that the bellicose, archaic, and usually larger-than-life threats used in North Korean political language seem reckless and clumsy, but they usually conceal highly nuanced truths about intention and desire. So is the case now. On Saturday, Kim Yo-jong announced through the North Korean state media, quote, It's better to take a series of retaliatory measures rather than release statements condemning South Korea's behavior, and which could be misinterpreted or dismissed. Rubbish must be thrown into the dustbin. By exercising my power authorized by the Supreme Leader, our party, and the state, I gave an instruction to the department in charge of the affairs with the enemy to decisively carry out the next action. If I drop a hint of our next plan the South Korean authorities are anxious about, the right to taking the next action against the enemy will be entrusted to the general staff of our army. Our army, too, will determine something for cooling down our people's resentment and surely carry it out, I believe. This may mean that the next phase skips over closing the Kaesung Industrial Park or any of the other steps suggested and moves straight on to military action. Or it may mean that she has given the authority to carry out the next phase to the military, who will then carry it out, or not. Or it may mean that none of these things will happen, or all of them. Maybe A, possibly B, could also be C. The linguistic point is that mentioning the military raises the possibility of danger and raises the stakes without committing to anything at all, which may be what they want, or not. But the raising of the stakes was not lost on national security officials in the South who immediately held an urgent meeting early Sunday morning, the 14th, to discuss possible responses, including military responses, along the border. But then, certain symbolic elements shouldn't be forgotten. North Korea exists for its image. All of this, the militaristic comments of Saturday the 13th, took place on the 20th anniversary, to the day, of the first meeting between the leaders of the North and the South. The summit was a major moment for South Korean President Kim Dae-jung, and the biggest moment for his reconciliation efforts. Those efforts increased trade and joint North-South projects, and for his work, earned him the Nobel Peace Prize. Ironically, all that trade and openness gave the North all the cash they would need to start and build up the nuclear program that is such an issue today. But that's a tale for another time. It's also the second anniversary plus one day of another meeting that didn't quite work out the way it was meant to. It was two years ago this weekend that Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump met in Singapore. So symbolism matters, right? It was on that second anniversary proper, the 12th, 
on Friday that the North officially ended its diplomatic efforts with the United States, as anemic as they may have been, all as part of this larger package of rhetoric. North Korea's foreign minister said of the whole affair on that anniversary, even a slim ray of optimism for peace and prosperity on the Korean peninsula has faded away into a dark nightmare. Dark Nightmare Indeed What is clear with this incident is that whatever softened relationship existed between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump in 2018, it does not exist today with hardliners Kim Yo-jong and Kim Yong-chol. And whatever is happening on the far side of 38 North, the United States is warned well away. Take this with you as I leave you today. A quote from the Director General for U.S. Affairs at North Korea's Foreign Ministry, Kwon Jong-gun. He said, If the U.S. pokes its nose into others' affairs with careless remarks, it may encounter an unpleasant thing hard to deal with. By way of clarity, he went on, the U.S. had better hold its tongue and mind its internal affairs first if it doesn't want to experience a hair-raiser. It would be good not only for the U.S. interests, but also for the easy holding of its upcoming presidential election. A hair-raising election, huh? Well, dear Vault listeners, do you know the only thing that could be more dangerous during times of modern Cold War tension than miscalculated inflammatory rhetoric that might leave no room for de-escalation in a looming crisis? Balloons. Thank you for listening to this Cold War Vault commentary on what we should be worried about this week. You can... Like and subscribe on Facebook and find us at coldwarvault.com for show notes, images, and links to anything that might be linkable in this show. Take a look at the new tiers on patreon.com slash coldwarvault. There are some interesting things I'm offering there. As always, please subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. And if Kim Yo-jong calls you a mongrel dog, take it as a compliment. Until next time.